Jesse Walsh and his family have just moved to the town of Springwood to a house on Elm Street. Ever since they moved in, Jesse has been plagued by bizarre nightmares of a horribly burned man with a razor glove. He learns about the story of Fred Krueger, and soon his nightmares are bleeding into his reality as the spirit of Krueger begins to possess Jesse in hopes of unleashing himself upon the world once more in the 1985 sequel, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Josh Allred. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Filmgasm podcast. Today's episode was a random selection from the book of Filmgasm, but definitely an interesting piece of Hollywood history that deserves to be told. Elm Street 2 was once thought to be the worst of the franchise, but fans have gradually come around on this one, thanks at least partially to a 2019 documentary we'll discuss in a bit here. Um, Elm Street 2, before you saw Scream Queen, what were your thoughts on Freddy's Revenge? Um, So it is it is a real big departure from the other movies in the franchise in that the main character who goes after Freddy is a is a dude and it was it was just it was really odd at times i didn't really know how to take it um because it does have a little bit of an uneven tone like the movie doesn't really know like where it's trying to uh marry from the first film uh kind of like the dream logic and how Wes craven really leaned into that which is what made nightmare on elm street such a revelation in a decade where slashers were getting really stale even at even in 1984 which is saying something um and i liked it but it was also just like i don't know why i like it like there are parts of it i really liked and there was just moments that i just because i saw it kind of young i just didn't really know all of the not so sub text that you are getting in it um and then you know being a horror fan it's like oh let's watch all the nightmare movies and doing it again it just was one of those that like really quickly became one of my favorite sequels i think if i'm ranking them it's going to be in the top half of the of my ranking with like you know um the dream child probably being towards the bottom it's just not just not my bag It, it didn't really do much for me um so, yeah, I mean, the documentary gives a lot more context and gives you a lot more appreciation for what happened in there. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. Uh, I think the doc was crucial for for me to kind of understand what this was trying to be, what this was trying to say, because when I saw this for the first time, it was like sophomore year of college when Caleb and I marathoned all the Elm Street movies in one day which I did with several franchises and that was a bad move because now they're all one giant ass movie that I can't differentiate. So I have to watch them on their own time, but I'm glad I did it this time. Uh, And I didn't like this one at all. I thought this was ridiculous and over the top and didn't make any sense and was just pointless. And I was like, this is like, are the rest of them this? I think I remember telling Caleb, like, are the rest of them this bad? But uh, Dream Warriors is pretty good. So yeah, that's my that's my personal favorite. I, I get it. It's a it's a pretty good movie. Um, but now having, you know, having seen everything I've seen since then and having gained a little bit of a you know more of appreciation for films like this and watching the documentary, it's gone up a lot in my ranking. I think it's it's better than I initially thought. I think that 
there, there's this the visual effects like the makeup and stuff are fucking phenomenal in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Patton is very good. He does a great job playing a guy just you know being driven to madness by Freddy Krueger. And there's some kills in here that are just you know unforgettable. So really, you know, I'm I'm glad I I'm glad we had this to kind of re reevaluate here. Uh, oh, forward to digging into it. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's very mean. And like when you really look at uh, Mark Patton's character, like Jesse, he he doesn't get any kind of sanctuary in the movie at all. Like he's getting it from a guy who starts out in the movie. It's kind of like he's bullying him or something, but then like they're friends. And that was another confusing aspect of it. He's got this really creep fucking teacher who you find out a little bit more about him later on. And then you've also got Freddie torturing him. And he just, he has nowhere to run. And it's like the worst thing because when you can't even trust yourself and what you are going to do, how you can handle stress and whatever's going on around you, like that's very scary. And I think those are, those are one of the things that I, I really enjoyed the more I've watched it and you kind of understand what Jesse's going through. And then when you have the added layer of, the not so subtle hints that they're dropping in the movie about Jesse and his sexuality and what he's trying to come to terms with. It is, um, it's, it's, it's even darker and it's even scarier. Yeah. It's a psychological slasher, which is a pretty cool meeting. You don't, you don't see that a lot. It was a big swing. It was a big swing at the time. Yeah. Um, Before we get further into it, I do have one quick update on the rewind. This one updates our episode on the Evil Dead. A long-awaited trailer for Evil Dead Rise finally dropped. The film is set for an April 21st release and trades a cabin in the woods for an apartment building in Los Angeles. And this looks delightfully over-the-top, freaky, and creepy. Everything I want from an Evil Dead movie. Yeah, I um, I got to see the trailer again when Caleb and I went and saw Megan. And I really enjoyed seeing it on a big screen, getting the chance to see just where they're going with this one, which is um, it's a lot more in line with uh, Fede Alvarez's remake, requel, reboot, whatever you want to call it. And I appreciate that. Um, I'm I'm sure because Raimi and Bruce Campbell and Rob Tappert are involved, there's going to be some moments of levity. There's going to be something that's going to balance all that stuff out. So I'm not too concerned with that. The things that we did see um, are very (laughs) any anything, especially with family, is going to hit with hit me a lot harder. And uh, we're we're definitely going to get that kind of story. And I'm very interested to see where this goes. Um, I even asked myself a couple of questions with like, if this, if this is the route that they're going to go with having different characters in this quote unquote universe, for lack of a better word, I'm very interested to see how that plan pans out. Um, they, uh, I don't know if you really caught it, but the book even looks different. It doesn't look like the one that we've known for this. So it's like, I'm wondering if they're going to address that. Maybe. Well, they never um, have in the past. The book looks different in every movie and they've never brought that up. Yes, but it's largely held the same kind of shape through pretty much all of the movies. It looked like there is a face on it. And in this one, there was no face on it and it had teeth on the side. So like that w- that's a big design difference. 
from previous previous movies. That's true. We established in the Ash versus Evil Dead show that like to create a new book, you gotta like make it, you know, take someone's face off. So like I wonder if this is a like the next book. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm excited. I like I know the, I'm glad Ramey and Campbell are heavily involved and that that gives me hope that this is going to be exciting and fun and freaky and I can't wait. I'm excited to finally do Evil Dead 2 on this show, which is what's going to happen the week that comes out. Spoiler alert. Uh yeah, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely excited and I'm very excited that they're going to put it out in theaters. I really was hoping that that was that they were not going to just dump it on HBO Max and they're not. So bring it. I can't wait to see that in a theater with a bunch of people losing their shit. Oh yeah, opening night, I'm going to be there. That'll be so much fun. <laughs> oh yeah. Ah, oh, good times. Uh so that's off the rewind. Let's talk Freddy's Revenge. Um, so this is a sequel that's been reclaimed. You know, at the time, everyone was kind of like, this is terrible. It's too gay, whatever. And uh, over the years, people have kind of come around on it. So my question for you is, what are some other horror sequels that you can think of that were dismissed upon release, but later reclaimed by subsequent generations? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, one that definitely didn't, um, was Return of the Living Dead 2. I know that one, uh, nobody really likes. Um, it has its moments for me, but like, I don't know how you continue that story. I feel like that movie just should exist on its own. It should just be its own thing. Um, hmm. I mean, Friday the 13th Part 2 is really good. Child's Play 2 is really good. Um, Look, you caught me. Um, <laughs> is there anything that pops into your head? Uh, for me personally, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'll give you that. Because, it, you know, we we did our, our 150th on it with all of us, and that was a blast. And I got to kind of talk it through and realize, like, you know what? It's not that bad. You can't, you know, you can't compare every painting to the Mona Lisa. You can't do it. Things have to stand on their own. But, you know, I, I don't know. But I don't remember. Was the pushback? Was there a significant pushback on Texas Chainsaw 2 when it came out? Like, was that a failure or a success? No, I'm pretty sure it was. It, it was a failure because people didn't know how to take it. People were like, this is not scary. This is way too funny. Like, I don't understand why. Why are they making so many jokes? And I don't think these people were paying enough attention to what was going on in Texas Chainsaw Massacre because they're are those moments now granted it's played a lot straighter so you don't really get the humor yeah. right up front but it's more in what the characters are saying i mean one of my favorite lines from texas chainsaw massacre is after uh leatherface is fucking up the house trying to kill all these kids and the cook comes back with the hitchhiker he's like look what your brother did to the door he ain't got no pride in his home. That shit cracks me up every fucking time I hear it, man. Every time. <laughs> and fucking Jim Sidow only cranks it up when they're in fucking uh, Texas Chainsaw 2. So, I mean, he really leans into how crazy that fucking guy is. Yeah, that's kind of become a running joke between me and Caleb. Like, whenever we bring up Leatherface, well, the whole, you know, he's got no pride in his home. That That comes up every time. It's a great running guy. I think it's in like most of the movies. Um, 
Yeah. I think you know, it's, I wonder what, what, like, what do you think goes into that? Like somebody, you know, a film kind of growing an audience on the side. Like, how, how, what do you think goes into to that kind of mindset for people saying like, you know what, it's, it's not, it wasn't great then, but now I can see it. Um, I think, I think distance from when it's first released, that certainly helps, um, you know, people putting aside their expectations for a, a sequel that comes out. Um, I mean, it's, it's very hard to divorce yourself from the first entry in what becomes a franchise of movies because that, that first one sets the tone and you, you are always, whether you're consciously or unconsciously doing it, you are always comparing everything that comes after it to the first one. Always. I mean, that was why Halloween three was so maligned because fucking, Oh, there's new Michael Myers, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, get it. Great. But take it on its own terms. It is a bonkers ass movie with a crazy over the top villain and a very fucking sinister goal that he's trying to achieve. And that is fucking terrifying, terrifying. And he all does it with a smile on his face. Like he knows he's going to get away with it. And you got to fucking, you got to enjoy that. And you get Tom Atkins fucking drinking and getting and getting his groove on. Like, how can you, how can you be mad about that? Sorry, I'm a Tom Atkins fan. Like you, you got to enjoy it. He's the best part of Night of the Creeps. Like one of my favorite, one of my favorite little memes is a picture of him like a like a still from that where he's turning around and telling all the girls you know your boyfriends are here bad news they're dead and it's like a freeze of him smiling <laughs> and it's somebody selling what they're calling atkins beer it's like hell yeah <laughs> yeah halloween three is a great example it took you know it took quite a few decades for people to accept that you know what it's not michael myers and that's okay um one that pops into my head uh, is Ghostbusters 2. I mm-hmm. think, you know, when that came out, everyone was like, you know, it was, they PG'd up, PG'd it up a little bit to be more in line with the cartoon, the real Ghostbusters. You know, it's, it's not perfect, but I think since then people have kind of, you know, warmed up to Vigo and the possession and the museum and the slime and all that. And it's become kind of part of the Ghostbusters story. And I've always loved it. And whenever I tell, like, I remember I used to tell people, like, Ghostbusters 2 is really good. And people would be like, really? Like, I had that conversation a few times. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's hard because when when a movie is successful, Hollywood's first, first thought is, let's make another one. Yeah. Because they're only going to go after the dollar signs. That's all they're chasing. And... Like it or not, that was actually what was in Nightmare 2's favor because everybody was riding so high on that that a lot of people went and saw fucking Nightmare 2. That movie made money, and it's it's the reason why we got more. I mean, you look at the, the production year of those movies. They were coming out like every year, yeah. and like it or not, that was, that was uh, all because Wes Craven's first movie was such a fucking such a fucking success i mean that's the reason why new lines the house that freddie built so and bob shea was smart enough to just be like fuck it let's just keep fucking rolling dice see keep doing it and he was also like 
the um the people that worked on those movies he kept like promoting people up and people were taking higher positions that's why um rachel uh Talele, she she was really like in the crew in the early films and then that's why she ended up directing um freddie's dead you know like she was there the entire way and she was one of the people that knew the franchise and the characters well enough and bob was like yeah go for it you got this one so it was a it was a real like family type thing that like kept this movie going um and because nightmare on elm street is more is the one of the more unique in terms of you know the 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 quote-unquote big slashers because you know when people think about the slashers it's always freddie michael jason like it's the first ones everybody names and for good reason i mean they have the most sequels they've had the most enduring legacy out of all of them and the ones that get lost in the sauce or left on video and, you know, only only mentioned briefly by real big horror nerds is because they're not that they tried. They tried to replicate that magic and they couldn't. Um, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is the Prowler. The Prowler is. Nobody really talks about it enough. I mean, I think it's pretty good, mostly because Tom Savini's doing the effects work in it, which is going to sell it i mean the burning tom savini effects that's a fucking a really good one so you know hollywood always tries to to replicate those things and it's and it doesn't always work but when it does they just keep they keep trying to suck at that teat man just get every little bit out every last drop yeah i saw an article this morning they've already started talking about a megan sequel mm-hmm. it does not take long <laughs> no mm. And I, you know, I'm all for sequels. I'm all for franchises. I just want them to be done for the right reasons, and they rarely are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when they're when you can when you can feel it and see it as you're watching a movie, and you know this is, this was only done just to make money, you kind of feel betrayed. You know, you're a little upset about it. You're like, I'm not that fucking dumb, dude. Like, yeah, just give me a good fucking movie. Yeah, I feel obviously like a- you're gonna get my money. I feel like a whore. I'm like, you know, I'm here. I'm going to be here regardless. The least you could do is entertain me. <laughs> yeah. You know, to, uh, to quote Tom Atkins, thrill me. <laughs> nice. That was a good full circle. Well done. Yes. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about how Freddy's revenge came about. Um, obviously a sequel to Elm street was no, was a no brainer. It's a big hit. Everyone's like, we need more Freddy. Uh the film been a huge hit for New Line producer Robert Shea, original screenwriter Leslie Boehm tossed around the idea of possession and pregnancy being the main hook of Freddy's return. It's going to be an homage to Rosemary's Baby. But uh, New Line passed on this because one of their executives, uh, Sarah Risher, was pregnant at the time. And this idea really upset her. So they were just like, OK, no, no pregnancy. We won't do that. <laughs> That's hilarious. I can just imagine the pitch. And she stands up. She's like, how dare you? It's like they didn't know she was pregnant. Yeah, she's got like she's got like a stack of fucking scripts in front of her. So she's looking at it, you know, and you're like, oh, she loves it. And she puts it down. She see the baby bump and you're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, fuck. We're screwed. We're screwed. Do you do you you have another idea? Like, totally. totally. Yeah. The other guy had just watched The Exorcist. He's like, ah, possession. Uh, they did put the pregnancy idea on the shelf and they revisited it later in Elm Street 5, the dream child. So didn't lose it. Obviously, you know, it's just one of those things. Bob was probably like, yeah, hey, look, I know she was upset about it, but just keep that one on the back burner. 
think we can use it. Yeah, she won't be pregnant forever. Give me nine months. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, Robert Shea offered the director's chair to Wes Craven, who turned it down due to a few reasons. One, he never wanted Elm Street to have a sequel. And two, he thought this was a terrible script. <laughs> he was like, I this is awful. I don't want I don't want to be a part of this. Uh the gig went to Jack Scholler, who had previously helmed 1982's Alone in the Dark for New Line, and felt that doing Elm Street 2 could put him on the map as a director, despite the fact that he didn't really care for horror films that much. <laughs> the more you read about it, the more you're like, yeah, I see why this didn't work out. Yeah, and that's and that's something else. Like I can I can get it if you are like a uh, a very like technical filmmaker and you can use the tools to manufacture a you know a, a mood or an atmosphere for a movie and really like really lean in on those visual aspects of it to get there. But if you don't even have an ounce of appreciation for genre, then you probably shouldn't make one. Probably shouldn't because nine times out of ten, it's not going to work out in your favor. And if you make a bomb. You're fucked. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're just here to be like, well, Elm Street's an established name. If I make this, then I'll get other jobs. But if you're not putting that much effort into this job, those jobs aren't happening. So nope. you know, if you if you don't like horror films, just kind of stay in your lane and get out of ours. Uh, this blew my mind. An unnamed extra in a rubber mask nearly landed the role of Freddy Krueger. They were going to... Yeah, for this movie, they were going to abandon Robert England because he was too expensive. Uh, the producers realized that all this did was basically turn Freddy into a knockoff of Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. He was just a dude in a rubber mask who didn't say anything. That's the exact opposite of what made Freddy so in- engaging and cool. Robert England brought his personal style to the character, and they realized, oh my, like Robert Shea realized, oh my God, I've made an enormous mistake and hired England back with his full list of demands. <laughs> I, hey, look, there are very few actors you can like, they are like synonymous with a role. You say Bruce Campbell, fucking you say Ash, you say Robert England, you say Freddie, you say fucking Kane Hodder, you say Jason. Like there are very few that you that you see that all the way through. And it's because they they do something like they embody it so well that you can't see anybody else doing it. Not only, not to mention rather, that you see Robert England's face in that makeup. He is Freddy. He is all the way down to the slump, like all of it. Yeah, absolutely. The You know, the performance is the character, that deep gravelly nightmarish voice, you know, you're all my children now. That's, that's Robert England. Like, some extra in a rubber mask is not going to be able to pull that off that effectively. And I'm glad they realized this before they got too deep into production and there was no way back. Oh yeah. No, that no, we wouldn't be sitting here if that was the case. Nope. England was hired back, ended up portraying Freddie in every subsequent film up to 2003's Freddie versus Jason. And uh, yeah, he retired the role a few years ago, popped into one episode of the Goldbergs weirdly as Freddie. But uh, since then, yeah, no, he's, he's says he's too old for it, which I don't know about that. I I mean it would be it would be hard to have him do a lot of work in in a movie so like I can understand when he says it that way um have you ever seen like any of the fan films that people have made for Nightmare on Elm Street I have not I haven't seen a lot of fan films 
So I don't remember the name of it. I was I was going down a rabbit hole one day, and I think it's after watching some. Uh, there was a fan film that this guy made for Friday Thirteenth called uh, "Never Hike Alone," <laughs> and he made a sequel called "Never Hike in the Snow," um, <laughs> because everybody's wanted to see Jason in the snow. You know, blood on the snow. It's a nice contrast. Great image. Um, and I was like, I wonder if anybody else has been doing these other things. So. There was one that this guy did where he had somebody playing Freddy and started from when he was human into him, you know, being the demon that we all know. It doesn't it doesn't work all the way for me, but it's interesting to see somebody else try to do that and what they bring to it. Um, if if I can remember what it is, I'll uh, I'll let you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there are there are some interesting things that people do with uh fan films and things like that um i highly uh highly recommend you check him out uh somebody uh got in touch with uh miko hughes and they're doing a fan film called dylan's nightmare (laughs) there's a trailer i think on youtube you should check that out miko hughes was gage in pet cemetery right yes and he was also dylan in new nightmare so yeah Yeah. Ah, that's neat i like that right yeah I did watch. I watched one fan film a while back. I didn't intend. I didn't intend to watch the whole thing, but it was so damn good I couldn't stop watching it. It was called Joker Rising. It was okay. a, an origin story of Heath Ledger's Joker in the Nolan verse, and he was uh, some lowly gangster named Cyrus who got brought into the Cobblepot Mafia by his buddy Croc, who was this like giant Hulkin dude supposed to be Killer Croc, and he falls in love with this hooker named Harley. And it turns into it was a great origin for Joker. It ends with him getting all fucked up by the you know getting the scars and all that. It was really good. It's still on there. It's like an hour and a half full movie. Oh uh, shit! Joker Rising, really good. I'll send you the link if you ever want to check it out. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, so production went as scheduled. Fallout was pretty bad. Uh, not at first. At first, everyone was like, "Not bad," but then they were like, "Wait a minute, did I just enjoy a gay movie?" And it was weird how that happened. It was just like, you already said you liked it. Why Why do you got to take that back? Well, I mean, I think given the era that that was in, um, you did, I mean, me growing up like in the 80s and 90s, um, there was a lot of, you know, homophobia. There's a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of um, people were very scared because the AIDS crisis was getting ramped up at that point. And, you had a very large stigmatization against gay people. And I mean, even all the way back in the thirties and forties, like if you were found out to be homosexual, you were done. Like you were not yeah. going to get any work. And which is sad because why does that have anything to do with you as an actor portraying a role that may or may not have anything to do with your own personality? Like it's irrelevant. And I think the fallout from that really hung like a cloud over this movie. And, and it even, if you really look into it and like the, uh, the, the documentary um, really kind of echoes these things, you know, it's like, you see some of these things going on and you're just like, wow, like that's okay. I can see, I can see why this is a problem. You know, I can see why the teacher is the way that he is, you know, like, does he hate who he is? Is he like 
mad because he got found out by a student who might tell on him and spread his secret. And, you know, what is that going to do to his life? You know, and and as we see now, even today, there are people who conduct themselves in unsavory manners and aren't comfortable with their own sexuality. So, like, they are the ones who are projecting that hate that they probably feel for themselves out onto the world in general and try to demonize people and strip them of their rights and make their own lives difficult because they can't be comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's disgusting. It's a blight on this nation, on the world, really. Like homosexuality has always been viewed as, you know, less than human, which is fucking twisted. It's disgusting. I don't, yeah, I'll, I'll never understand it. I was never raised with hate for anybody in my heart. So when I see it, I almost have to be like, I have to figure it out. Like, why? I just don't get it. Like, why, why would you waste time in your life hating people for that reason? Like, you got nothing better to do. You're that empty of a person. Like, uh, but we'll get into that when we in a minute here. We're going to talk about the doc. Uh, Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, d- did end up being a big commercial hit initially, grossing $30 million on a budget of $3 million, though critics and fans did eviscerate it. Has an IMDb score of 5.4, Letterbox score of 2.9 out of 5, and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 42%. Critics consensus reads: an intriguing subtext of repressed sexuality gives Freddy's Revenge some texture, but the nightmare loses its edge in a sequel that lacks convincing performances or memorable scares. To that, I say, fuck you. This has very good performances and quite a few memorable scares. I don't know. Um. Uh, but that is a great segue into the cult classic status this film has taken on due to the homosexual subtext that's rampant in the film. In 2019, Roman Cimenti and Tyler Jensen produced a documentary about the film's star, Mark Patton, and the fallout from the film's release that fell on his head more than anyone else's. That doc was Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. At the time of production, Mark Patton was a closeted gay man, and he felt the production had taken advantage of him trapped him into being typecast as gay, and ultimately forced him to leave Hollywood. The fact that the AIDS crisis was at its peak in America at the time certainly didn't help. Uh, Yeah, this doc uh, is, I think, the first step towards a big apology for Mark Patton. Because he was just massacred by this film and the fallout and fans and critics and Hollywood itself. And he never really found his way back. No, he didn't. Um, And he had quite a few friends like he he mentions a lot of his friends that he had at the time that that was some of them had very similar things happen to them. Um, Stephen Jeffries from Fright Night. uh, And also he was in 976 Evil directed by Robert England for a little connection there. Um, He he also had a lot of problems with that. And it it's amazing how that like haunts people. It's just for being who you are. I mean, it's not, it's not fair. It doesn't make any sense. Um, And you're ultimately ruining a life out of all of that. And when you hear Mark Patton speak about it, you have nothing but sympathy for him. I mean, he, he was, he was watching, literally watching friends of his die from AIDS and Yet he couldn't even he couldn't even find work because he was gay. Like what? Like why? That that bit when his agent goes into his closet and like throws out some outfits and says like you can wear that 
to auditions, everything else has to go. Like, I, I can't, I can't comprehend that. Like having to completely, you know, reinvent who you are completely against your will, just so you can have a career as somebody who doesn't even exist. Cause the real you is being buried under this identity that you hate. Like, what a nightmare. Literally. And it, and it says it's, it's a much more uh, heavy um, condemnation of how Hollywood is structured and that you have to play by their rules or you're not getting in and you can't be you. You have to be what we will sell you as. And that is what brings a lot of people who can't deal with that. I don't know how many people could deal with that on a regular basis for years and years and years and have a normal life without like totally destroying themselves with drugs, alcohol, whatever. And it happens time and time again. And there's so many stories that nobody even knows about. And it's, and I would guarantee you that they're very, very similar to things that happened to Mark Patton and other gay actors through the eighties and well before then. Yeah, just look at what happened to Rock Hudson. You know, he was forcibly outed by the media, died of AIDS. Like, you know, in that in those last years was, you know, had his whole career pretty much taken away from him because he was gay. And he was, you know, one of the most popular leading men in Hollywood in the golden age. And just because he was gay, all of that was, you know, forfeit. It's it's really fucked up. And I'm glad this documentary shined a light on on at least Mark Patton's story. Uh and also, you know, we got to see I was I was surprised at how flippant uh, Jack Shoulder was about the whole situation. Like he was very much just like, get over it. It's like, why are you still holding on to this? Well, first off, he was very adamant that there was nothing gay in the script. I didn't write anything gay in the script. There's nothing. What? No, he's in it. What? The teachers in the S&M bar? That's not gay at all. I don't know what you're talking about. And then later on in the doc, you, you find him and he's like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I, mean, I guess if you look at it, there are some gay things in there. I'm like, pick a fucking lane, bro. Like, seriously, don't be such a dick about this. You wrote a script. You were going for something. Now, I will say from, from one aspect of it, to try and subvert what was already being established as a very tried and true trope of slashers to have your final girl. If you have your final girl to be a gay man, like, that's... It's pretty bold. And and Mark Patton does a lot of those very same things that a final girl does. And and then and then also doesn't, you know, like it's very it's very interesting how they're trying what they try to get out of him and ultimately like direction, the script let him down. But I will tell you that Mark Patton's performance in that movie is 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 amazing. I love it. It's great. I mean. <laughs> I I I was just watching it a little while ago and the the scene where he's like breaking all the stuff out of the boxes in his room and he's setting his room up and stuff like that is if you if you want to get like really scholarly about it you know like that's him at his most like vulnerable and him being himself in that moment and like he freaks out when his mom walks and he's like oh shit like oh, huh. um no i wasn't just dancing what i don't dance like that what are you talking about mother and even then like he's trying to hide who he really is to his own mom 
into his best friend who's got a crush on him. And, and then there's those little awkward moments. And I even feel like at the end, they were forcing that ending. Uh, so, I mean, if, if we, when we start talking through like the plot and stuff, I'll come back around to that, the, the point I'm going to make, but it's, it's just, God, I wanted to punch that guy so many times watching that documentary. I just wanted to reach through the screen and punch him in the face. He's like the most despicable person in that whole documentary. It's, he was the main antagonist of all of that. He could have, he could have put to rest all of these problems that plagued this man for his whole life. If he would have just been like, you know what? I'm sorry. I should have stood up for you. I didn't. I was a coward, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't. He couldn't even be fucking asked to apologize to at the end of it. It was the worst apology ever. Yeah. Chaskin, right? Yeah. David, David Chaskin, the screenwriter. Uh, yeah. I, he, Patton also pointed out that what Chaskin continued to do is every time the movie would get another spotlight, would start be talk, the, hom- the homosexual context or subtext would be talked about in a positive light, he would then own up to it and be like, oh yeah, I intended that. I, I'm i glad you, you saw through that. I, it was a, a nod to the rampant homophobia and I wanted to rise above that. It's like, fuck you. you you're just looking for a, a way to hog the spotlight. Bastard. No, nah, dude, you were trying to fucking, you were trying to not so subtly put some shit in there and drag gay people through the mud and only when people were taking it back and trying to see the positives in it, were you then trying to get credit for it? Fuck you. Yeah. Ugh. Um, but yeah, good doc. If you want to watch the doc, it is available to stream on Shutter. Uh, it's great. It's like an hour and a half. Uh, do it. I recommend doing what I did. I watched the doc before I I rewatched Freddy's Revenge, so I had a whole new kind of lens to look at this movie with. That's that's the way I think you should do it. Yeah, highly, highly recommend doing that. I think when I when I when I heard about the documentary, I was very, very excited. And after watching it, I rewatched uh Freddy's Revenge and I really, I really enjoyed it a whole lot more. I mean, there's plenty that I enjoyed about this movie. I mean, you have fucking Clue Gulliger being the go- it was weird. Like he was like the goofy dad, but he's also like uh, it- my son just needs to get his ass kicked. That's all. That's what's that's the only thing that's wrong with him. But then he's such a buffoon. Like he can't even climb up a ladder. Like get the fuck out of here, man. You know, he has no idea what's going on with his son's life, but he knows he just needs a foot in his ass to set him straight. Literally. <laughs> yeah. 80s dad. That's, that's what it is. 80s dad. 80s mom was, you know, he needs help. And 80s dad was, no, he just needs to, you know, get a job and, clean his room not a lot of dimensions in those characters but you know that's that's how it was <laughs> totally um freddie's revenge is not streaming anywhere anymore the elm street films were on shutter for the longest time until we needed them and <laughs> then they were gone but uh i was able to actually find the entire movie on youtube so since it's there at the moment go check it out i don't know how much longer it will be there yeah, it was actually they were all on HBO Max at one point too. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's fairly fairly cheap to come by. Let me let me do a little look see real quick because um, that's what I did. I borrowed Caleb's um, Caleb's little complete set. Like, and that's another thing that really bugs me is like they don't have 
a definitive like re-release of all of these movies. Yeah, you could get the entire collection on Blu-ray for 40 bucks. And I think it also includes a documentary in there as well. So like that's not I mean it's not that bad. Like I was kind of hoping they would do things like have like a uh some commentary along with it, but they don't. Um and that's what I think the especially Freddy's Revenge dream uh dream warriors like those like those ones that are really really loved like i think those those are reason enough to like revisit these touch them up give them the the deluxe treatment they deserve because you should absolutely these movies just like fucking halloween and fucking friday the 13th like they it deserves that 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 fucking extra touch so fans can really you know get the appreciation yeah, absolutely. I think every film does. Every film is somebody's favorite movie. I think absolutely. Yeah, we should. We should every film should get an opportunity to have you know be available at its best, at its highest quality. I'm I'm all for that. Uh, oh, speaking of, have you ever seen? Um, it's called uh, Never Sleep Again. Have you ever I seen haven't, that? Because it's like a six hour documentary, so I have I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's it oof, boy, but there are it's really, really good. Like it con- it goes through comprehensively like every movie and talks about it with every bit of the cast, crew, all of that. So it's really, really good. Um, I I highly recommend you uh, you just park it one day and just go for it. Yeah, I would that in a Crystal Lake memories. I would like to see. It's just that's an intimidating fucking runtime, but I will one day do it. So when I first watched them, I would break them up into like two hour chunks and just do it like that. You know, like they, they are, they're kind of geared to where like they'll cover, you know, one movie and it'll just move to another, you know, like it's not like they jump back and forth. It's just like, this is Friday one, this is Friday two, blah, 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 blah. Um, and we've got them. So you are coming through. So maybe we might do that one day. Fuck it. Why not? I've got five days. Exactly. <laughs> um, with that, let's discuss uh, some things we liked about Freddy's Revenge. Uh, go through the plot a bit. Uh, we open on the school bus from hell, which was interesting. Uh, apparently, Robert England is driving the bus out. Oh out. yeah, no, he's totally driving the bus. You can t- you you can see it. I love that. Uh, and Jesse's just sitting in the back, just like burning holes into the seat in front of him, just looking wrecked. And. Uh, yeah, I love when the bus just turns into the desert and you're like, oh shit, this is a this is a Freddy dream. Yeah, but see, okay. So some people have said like it totally abandons the dream logic that um was set up in Nightmare One. And I would disagree to a certain extent. Like it it starts out that way and it and it bookends the movie that way. Um but I think what they try to do a little bit differently is you know, they are bringing the whole possession angle into it and there are these little moments where there are some kind of like, what the hell's going on? Like, did I really do this? Or um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, they should have been a lot more clear with their, their rules that they were going to follow. Um, though I did kind of like the, uh, the possession that Freddie was trying to, you know, he was trying to work through Jesse to get his fucking job done. See, that never really bothered me because we established in the first movie that Freddy is able to warp reality if he gets powerful enough. So like, I just assumed that, Oh, he's, you know, he's warping reality. He's powerful enough to like, we never, the line between dream and real world was fuzzy already in the first movie. So I didn't, 
I, I never really saw this as breaking those rules, just kind of like adding some bylaws. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Um, I think what we don't get that probably would have helped that a little bit um, is to be like a little more obvious right up front that, you know, they're in the house. Cause I, cause I don't think you actually see the exterior for a little bit. And then when you do, you're like, Oh shit, that's the house. You know, and I think if you would have if you would have had that, even if it was structured differently, you know, even if after that first nightmare or whatever, you know, you 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 find out that they're actually living in that house, something. But anyway, that's a that's a totally minor gripe. Do you think the Elm Street uh, continuity is the tightest of like the big horror slasher franchise continuities? Um. Maybe I don't know because when they start Dream Warriors, like Freddy's bones are in a fucking junkyard. How the fuck did those get there? Um, so I mean, there's that. Um, I think I think they have their moments where, like, they I think after um, Freddy's Revenge, when they went from there all the way after, I think there's a lot more continuity because I think they were finally just like, okay, we had a little hiccup here let's let's refocus this is how we're going to proceed and then this is the way we're going to go um they also really uh fleshed out his mythology in dream warriors and then that carried through i mean they also brought back heather langenkamp for for that as well to kind of try and like reset everything because i felt like they you know they they had a they had a little oopsie and they needed to get back on track but i think like continuity wise i mean nothing's going to be worse than halloween (laughs) nothing and um friday the 13th to me always felt more like episodic in a way you know like it's just like wash rinse repeat you know kids are coming to the lake they get horny and drunk jason kills them and then we go again that you know it's it's not there's not really trying to follow an overarching story because that story was told in the first movie and then it's just like, oh, he's still out there. Yeah. Uh, Child's Play, actually, Child's Play, that franchise is absolutely the be- the best continuity to me. I was, I was thinking about that. Yeah, I was thinking, I was trying to find the holes, and I couldn't find any. Yeah, Child's Play 2, Chucky Season 2, tight. Yeah, and I will say the reason why is because they've had one man driving that whole fucking bus. Yeah. And guess what? fucking chaskin it's a gay man Ooh, you fucker and don mancini has only made that 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 character and those that whole thing that whole world better as it's gotten as it's gotten on you know sometimes it'll lose steam but no way those movies have only continued to impress me and he's found a way to keep reinventing himself too chucky like the whole world like everything and to really just rub it in the face of all you fucking haters out there who can't stand gay people. It's like, ha ha ha. We're really going to lean into it now. Yeah. I love that Chucky can be at both times, a sadistic psychopath and a very supportive father of a, of a, of a transgender child. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. Like people are, people are complex. Anyway. Um, yeah, Chucky. I got. It's been a long time since I went through the Chucky franchise. I gotta, I gotta watch those again. I bought a, a set. It's got you know all seven movies. Seven. Yeah, seven movies. Yeah, 
All seven. I got to just sit down and watch those. They're great. Yeah. So do so do we. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was laughing my ass off when Jesse wakes up from that nightmare screaming and his family does not even blink. Yeah, like, well, to, to me, that's like this has been happening for a while. Yeah. So, again, it's like. I kind of want to know how long they've been there. And I like, you know, like those little moments where like Freddie, cause like to me, if, if you want to try and like really have this be like a, a, an actual sequel, like when he is eliminated. So we think in the first one by Nancy, he's at his weakest. So I think slowly, like he, like he set up before, in the or not before but in the other sequels he kind of has to get his strength back in a way and i think slowly like getting to that point with jesse you know again it's a structure thing you know you 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 ask these questions out loud and you find a way to make those make it make more sense um i think this could have been an even better an even better movie and that was something else that like if you want to gripe about it it's like freddie is there in a in a in a lot of the movie but he's not like physically there it's like he's doing these things kind of like a poltergeist you know he's fucking making the fucking toaster flare up for fucking no reason or he's exploding tennis balls or you know making birds crazy and you know all of these things like and he's the one that's doing it he's the one that's absolutely doing it um but he's just not physically there so that is one way that they changed the 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 rules added bylaws to use your phrasing See, but like in the first one, he was able like the her name's Tina, right? The, mm-hmm. She's flying around the room getting clawed to death. So how is he able to do that? But making a toaster explode in real life is too much for people. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I never thought I'd be the one on the side of like, it's OK. The rules have not been changed. We're fine. Oh no, like I'm I'm only I'm only using other people's critiques to try yeah. and like, you know, connect the dots here. I don't give a shit. You know me, like I'll yeah. fucking watch some bonkers stuff. I don't care, you know. Yeah. The <laughs> the funniest thing for me about that whole like bird sequence is like Clue Gulliger just he fucking sells that shit. He's just like, "Oh, oh, oh god. You guys got to get out of the way." Oh. No, oh, no, Jesse move. And a bird fucking comes by and clips him and he's like, "Ah, oh, damn it. Oh, bird." Ah. You know, he's just, he goes for it. That's what I always loved about that guy. He never, he's like my favorite. He's one of my favorite characters in Return of the Living Dead. Because he just, he's like, he's the straight man caught in the fucking wild ass fucking movie that's going on. And he has, he has no idea how to react. So he's just like, everything is at a 10. I love his first reaction to like, how did this happen is somehow, Jesse, you poisoned the bird and made him explode. Like, I don't know how, but you did this. Like, yeah, because he because he can't wrap his brain around that, you know, there's something weird going on in the house. We got a good price for it, honey. Like, I mean, how the hell do you think we got? Of course, somebody fucking died in here and their kid went crazy. Well, duh, we got this house out of steel. Did they ever even have a moment where they like realize what's been going on or is, do they just accept? Oh, Jesse's fine now. Uh, I don't recall. Think. No, I don't think there was ever like that whole acceptance that maybe this is freddy that's happening because i think the parents were largely had like no idea how to handle it and i think that was another missed opportunity to create like a lot of tension between the parents and the son because if you think about it that was a very common 
theme in a lot of 80s movies is the parents against the kids the kids are trying to tell the parents something wicked is happening the parents don't care or they're just like totally oblivious until it smacks in the face and then they're like oh shit my kid's in trouble i gotta help them but then the kids are like nah dude we got it don't worry about it we we we, we solved it you took too long asshole you know i think that's a big reason why i really like poltergeist because everybody immediately knew the stakes all at once and they could work together to solve this together I, I appreciate that. Yeah, totally. Um, well, that was like the um, it's like the Amblin effect. That was that was a lot of that's a lot of how those movies were like that. I mean, it's it's a simple structure. It's a simple thing to use. But you have really good people behind it. That's why you get quality stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that was a uh, I think that was a missed opportunity. Um, and even though this came a year afterwards, uh, it, it's actually like five years after the events in the movie. So enough time has settled supposedly that people would have forgotten about what happened. And I don't think that necessarily the case, but what we do come to find out later in the sequels about the parents of Springwood is they try very, very hard to not talk about what happened because it was all their fault. They did this. Yeah. Well, Freddie did it to himself, but they, yeah, it's their, it's their fault too. Oh yeah, no, Freddie's guilty as fuck, but the parents were the ones that made him even worse than what he was already. Wasn't the original like idea of the remake going to be that like Freddie was innocent and the parents demonized him and turned him into a monster? Uh, so from what I could understand about the remake, it was like he was he was professing his innocence and that he didn't do anything, but but then. If, if I remember the remake correctly, when Nancy, like, finds his hiding spot, she finds out that, like, no, he's actually, he's actually exactly what they think he is. Yeah. And he just had a very, uh, he had a very, uh, a, he had a lot of affinity for Nancy. That was his favorite. And I saw the remake one time a very long time ago. I don't remember anything. Yeah, I'm vaguely, I'm vaguely recalling the events because I've only seen it once and I couldn't be fucking asked to fucking watch it again because I just got so mad at that movie. Like there to me, there's only one good scene in it, and it's when fucking Patrick Lucier tries his best to uh do his version of uh the fucking Glenn death with a fucking bed and shit. And other than that, that movie is totally forgettable for me. I yeah. Jackie Earl Haley, Jackie Earl Haley, like he 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 was never he was never going to live up to that expectation, um, but yeah, that movie never should have gone forward. Yeah, I think in the right hands with the right makeup department and the right script, Jackie Earl Haley could be a phenomenal Freddy Krueger. He just, I think he got the, you know, the shitty end of the stick there. Yeah, uh, he got burned. Uh, <laughs> But that's for a future beyond the bad, because that is the only sh- show that that movie belongs on. Um, when we go to gym class or track or whatever the hell, football, whatever, outside, cla- outside class, um, I find it interesting that the women are objectifying the men. Like her friend saying like to the guy, like, nice ass. Like, I-, I like a little, you know, shaking it up a little bit. I like that. Yeah, and that's what I think, like, this movie is like excelling at and trying to like subvert those things where it's like, you know, 
the guys are just being guys and being stupid and, you know, just being guys. And, and the girls are just incredibly horny and they really want to get, get it on because like the whole time they're trying to get, um, wow. What was her? God damn it. I'm trying to think of her character name. Um, was it Lisa? No, that's the actual actress's name. Anyway, um, they're, they're, they're trying to get her and Jesse hooked up the whole time. Uh, it is Lisa. You were right. Ah, thank you. My brain has not failed me yet. <laughs> yeah, it's funny the whole time. She got hired entirely because she kind of looked like Meryl Streep, which is funny. That's how it works in, in Hollywood. It's fucking Hollywood for you. Yep. Uh, Jesse's first interaction, his real re- interaction with Freddie is really homoerotic. With Freddie, you know, caressing his lips. And he was going to put a blade in his mouth, but they thought like Patton was uncomfortable with that. They're like, that's that's too much. But uh, England was like, let's do it because he's into some freaky shit. Well, I think I think because he is so into the character and he knows the character so well that that is absolutely the kind of thing he would do to anyone and probably especially would do to a, a, a young gay man absolutely yeah just pushing that envelope and fucking with him and torturing him and taking you know extreme liberties with their sexuality and trying to use it against him absolutely um because you know freddie's able to read people and you know invade their darkest nightmares i've always assumed he Mm -hmm. He could read their minds. He could know their thoughts. He knew he was in their subconscious. So, like, you can't keep a secret from Freddy Krueger. I always no. assumed that. So, no, 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 definitely. Yeah. So the fact that he would be aware of of, of uh, Jesse's sexuality, even if Jesse himself may not be aware of it yet, and Freddy would absolutely use that as a weapon. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, it's it's been proven time and again in in the later um, sequels. Um, I've probably mentioned this before. Uh, Nightmare 4 was one of the my earliest horror movie memories. And it was when I scared the shit out of myself. Um, <laughs> my parents were watching it. And I was supposed to be in bed. And that's the kind of kid I was. I would sneak down and I would try to find out what my parents were doing. And I saw they were watching this movie. And I was sitting in the back. They didn't had no idea I was there. And it was at the scene where... Her name's Dana, Diana, something like that. She um, she was the chick that was really obsessed with working out and her physique and she wanted to be strong and all this shit. And she's fucking on a bench just getting it. And then Freddie comes over her and he grabs onto the bar and she's trying to push it up and he's pushing it down and just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And finally, he pushes so hard that her arms bend back and snap. And because Freddie knows what she's fucking tortured by we see it as an audience she's like terrified of insects and what does he do he winds up turning the home gym garage that she's in into a fucking roach motel and she winds up growing fucking cockroach arms out of her fucking just ripped off arms and she turns into a fucking roach and that shit fucked me up fucked me up (laughs) i don't even remember that I I have no memory of four or five or Freddy's dead. Oh, do it, Fred! Uh, Nightmare Four's got some good uh, got some good one liners too. Um, 
he he uses the whole, whole fucking you know they check in but they don't check out when he's doing the roach motel thing um and then one of the girls uh he uh he straight up just like deflates her he's like in the classroom messing with her when she's falling asleep and he's like you want to suck face and he just fucking plants his lips on her and just sucks the life right out of her man ah oh, i want to we got yeah i gotta get this set i want to watch these <laughs> i'm telling That's you man cool. look look we could do a back-to-back of dream warriors and fucking dream master and just get it that's that's my favorite like one two punch i'm down absolutely uh i was laughing really hard at the snake at the the incident with the snake that you think is a dream and then he wakes up and there's a fucking snake and the teacher is like mad at him for his snake escaping it's like what the fuck here what does he say like if you want to he said something corny yeah, I think it's like if like if you wanna if you wanna hold my snake or something, you just could wait after you could ask me or some something stupid like that. Like it was really like yeah. Yeah. Imagine waking up from a nap in school and all of a sudden there's a fucking boa constrictor wrapping itself around your neck. Uh, I uh at one point uh I had a uh a boa constrictor. Okay. And yeah, yeah, I had him for like six months. I wanted to keep him, but uh I was gonna have my son and uh his mom was like no get rid of it i was like yeah okay but one day um well actually quite a few times i used to uh i used to take him out during the summer i would take him out of his tank and i would uh sit him on the coffee table that we had because the sun would come right up on it and he would literally just curl up and just lay right there and one day i fell asleep watching tv and he was there and i woke up and he he was starting to to move away from it and i was like nah motherfucker you are not no 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 he did get out a couple of times but he would i would find him by like the dryer or something where he could get warm and shit like that so i mean he was very predictable about where he was going to go but it's that it's that moment of fear where you're like where the fuck is he oh shit cuz it got big quick i think it was like about 3 feet when i got him and within six months, he had doubled in size. It was humongous. Fuck that. I I don't like reptiles, especially snakes. <laughs> I no way in hell could I ever know. Uh-uh. If I if my if my cat disappears, I'll just be annoyed and like look under furniture. If my snake disappears, I'm getting a new apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, snakes, snakes smell horrible, man. Snake shit and snake piss, it's fucking god awful. Oh my god. Oof. I don't recommend the benefit of having a snake. I I mean, so I got fascinated with him when I was really young. Um, this is another childhood story of mine. Um, where I was growing up in California in the apartment complex, the one of the neighbors we had at one time was literally like a motley crew reject, wore leather pants fucking vest the guy like, I, I don't ever remember the guy wearing an actual t-shirt he was always like either shirtless or wear more like a vest of some kind uh he had big black teased hair fucking you know like the early early days of tattooing so all of his tattoos looked green and he had and he had uh he had a couple snakes and I think one was male and the other one was female and they mated and had baby snakes and all that stuff and I used to go over there and he was like, my snake had babies. Do you want to do, do you want to hold them? 
because the other because his actual like the the two the other two snakes the parents they were bigger so like he wouldn't he wouldn't let me hold it like he always had to be the one holding it and i would like pet it and stuff like that but he let the baby ones crawl around me and i was got really fascinated really young with with them at that point and i always wanted to have one of my own and then i found out how much a pain in the ass they are to have and i just i I didn't have the time um and yeah it just no it's really cool to watch them eat though i will say that yeah i've seen seen road trip i know i know (laughs) yeah i've never known anyone who had a snake or if they did i never went to their house and saw it and they never talked about it oh um Okay, so yeah, the snake dream is hilarious. Uh, the unpacking dance, which is kind of the focal point of everyone's homophobia, who hates this movie, like you, like straight kids don't do that shit too. Uh, I have danced around plenty of times in my room, and nobody's watched me. So, fucking pop that bubble. Yeah, and and I've been caught, and I've just been like, I don't know. Did you like what you saw? I don't know. One of my favorite things to do is dance behind somebody. When they don't know, oh, I'm there. And then somebody that is across from me can see me doing it. So I'm dancing for them. But the person I'm dancing behind doesn't know I'm there. And then when they realize I'm be- I'm behind them, I'll immediately stop. And they'll have no idea what happened. It's, that's, a, that's a hobby. Great. And I will know to never. Well, I'm, n- I'm not going to know. So what am I talking about? Yeah, I'm just, it's just going to be a fun game we're going to play then. <laughs> But it's a goofy moment, but you know, it, it's it's Jesse expressing himself. You know, he's been in a dark place. Let the man have a little dance. I mean, you already are telling him to go clean his room while he's on his way to a date because you're a bad father, dad. And yeah, just let the kid have some fun. Uh, I love that they find Nancy's diary in the closet. Like nobody unpacked that shit. And she just wrote down everything. Like, when did she have the time to write down what happened to Glenn? Like, that was a pretty quick turnaround between Glenn exploding. And Freddie coming out of the out of the hat there. Oh, I mean, whenever uh, whenever she wasn't sleeping, I guess. I don't know. I mean, that's because, I mean, you know, you have that you have that gap between when the first one ends and when we take, you know, the events in Nightmare 2 start. So, like, you kind of they, they, they have they have the leeway to be able to say that. But, yeah, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you start to really think about it. In. In the actual continuity, like, did her mom get killed by Freddy or didn't she? Like, did that, did she make it? Um, I am, I'm of the belief that she did die. Like, Freddy got her. Um, because the end is a dream for Nancy. You know, she thinks her mom's alive. And yet when she gets in the car to go to school, you know, everybody's there, you know, and she sees and she sees her mom at the door and then Freddie just yoinks her That's with true. the fucking worst inflatable sex doll fucking stand in. Um, but that was but but that was their carry ending, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I got to watch Dream Warriors again to get more of Nancy's story. I really do. Uh, Killer parakeet, not necessary, kind of kind of funny. Another oh great yeah, for for dad to fuck up parenting, totally out of place. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, I feel like I could fend off a a killer parakeet. I mean, if there's any bird I could fight, it's a parakeet. 
Well, I mean, look, we, we've been taught by movies, you know, you just got to get some brooms, put a blanket together, and you can just grab it. <laughs> well, that was a bat. That's, that's a different situation. Look, as <laughs> long as you got a fucking frying pan, you just beat the shit out of it when it's on the ground. You got it. Oh, okay. Uh, <clears throat> Jesse wandering into the into the gay bar. I thought for a second that was a like a Freddy dream, but then it turns out it wasn't. That was that was odd. It's like coach finds him. It's like I'm gonna make you run laps because you found me in a gay bar. Doesn't Jesse have more leverage over you? You would think. You would think. And that was a very odd punishment. I I will give you that. You know, um, probably well. Given that he doesn't change his outfit or at least cover up when they, they when they leave, he probably wasn't planning on dropping him off at home for his parents because they would have had a lot of questions, a lot of questions. They still, um, did they you still drove to the school, which means like, I wonder what what the hell did they talk about? Probably like, nothing. He was probably just fucking old coach was just fucking scowling the whole time. Uh, did you catch who the bartender was? Um, no, I didn't. Bob Shea. Ah, cool. Yeah, he always wanted. He always wanted to be an actor. Didn't he want to play the dad? And everyone had to kind of talk him out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hard. To okay, tell the guy okay, fine. fine. I'll be the like. Yeah, you, okay, fine. I'll just be the dad, or I'll just be the bartender. That's fine. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, for more subtext, the coach gets attacked by balls. Lots of yeah. balls. <laughs> Lots of balls and balls of all sizes, so it's equal opportunity. Yeah, you know, I, I love that. It's like if you can't tell this movie is very gay, like, are you even paying attention? Well, yeah, that that's why I'm like, that's why I call it not so subtext. You know, like it's it's so in your face, um, and I mean, really, kind of like playing with the bondage thing, where like the fucking the fucking jump ropes are tying him up and. The the ultimate manliest death, getting your ass fucking cracked with towels the whole time. Yeah, that was a. Uh, I feel like not the greatest death for him because he. I'm pretty sure he was into that shit. So like, right. I I wonder if Freddie got weirded out or he had a moment of like, all right, we we, we got to stop this. Yeah, what do I got? You know what? I'm just going to kill him. This is not getting me where I thought it was going to be. I think he turned around and winked at me at one point. Did he just say harder, daddy? I don't I don't know. I would love just one time in one of these movies where Freddie like took that, you know, went after a masochist and the guy enjoyed it too much that Freddie got weirded out and just gave up. I want I want to see that. (laughs) Uh. We get the pool party, which is, I love it's all vanilla and like, oh, we're just having a barbecue. And then the parents go to bed and it's like orgy time. Right. <laughs> it just goes to 11 super quick. People are fucking in the pool. Like it did not take long. Oh, no, of course not. And they didn't even really wait either. It was like lights are out. Everybody drop your drawers. Party yeah. time. Even up there, dad's like, what are they doing down there? And mom's just like, ah, just go to bed. Yeah. Don't worry about it, honey. They're kids. They're just playing. Oh, the scene where, for me, one of the fucking highlights of this franchise, when Freddie comes out of Jesse, 
holy shit was that freaky looking that was impressive i that bumped the film score up a couple points for me i was like this is that was cool yeah uh, that's that's a big uh that's a big uh highlight for fucking uh kevin yeager and mark showstrom who were the big uh special effects guys on uh on the on that movie um and they're they're bigger names in like the nightmare franchise especially kevin yeager because i think he was doing the special effects for dream warriors too um but yeah like he like they really leaned into it that was some straight up fucking cronenberg body horror bullshit right there like jesse's opening his mouth and screaming and who's inside freddie just waiting to get out i love that grady the whole time just like knocking on the door he sees a a dude emerge from jesse's like ripped open body and he's still like dad like at that point how have you not jumped out the window I mean, for real, or just straight up Bugs Bunny through that fucking wall. <laughs> right. Um, apparently at the premiere, uh, the guy who played Grady, his dad was at the premiere and he started sobbing at this scene because he was watching his son die. And it got I too, mean, that's how you know real. it's good. Yeah, got really real. Oh, uh, then Freddie attacks the party, which is funny. He just starts slashing people. Uh one guy breaks in a shotgun and Freddie gives him this look of like, what the fuck did you just do? <laughs> I love that. He gives him like, you serious? <laughs> did you just take a shot at me? <laughs> oh, that's remember- where, that's where this movie gets like real lean and mean. Like when that, when that happens, um, I mean, they, they, they had to have something in this movie that was going to have an Oh shit moment. Like, Johnny Depp getting swallowed by his fucking waterbed. And and this was absolutely it. Absolutely. Yeah. Parents, like I don't recall, were they aware that the backyard was getting slot like slaughtered while they were in the house? Yeah, no, they 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 had a moment where they were like, what's going on out there? Because you know, everybody's fucking screaming and shit. Oh yeah. So like, and I and I think it was after um after jesse had killed grady and he came in the house i think that was another moment where like he was in the house and like he started you know losing his shit and him and lisa you know lisa was trying to help him and they were having their little moment and then he freddie comes out and then he like breaks through their back wind their back door or something it's like that moment where he crashes through the through the door and he disappears and everybody's like what the fuck yeah, and the fucking hot dogs start popping like popcorn kernels, and the beers are fucking chefs, fucking just popping and spurting everywhere. <laughs> yeah, okay, I remember that now. I love the line, "You are all my children now." That's like I always assumed that was from the first one because that's such Mm-mm. a great line, but no, that came out of part two. Yep, I mean he's always after the kids. He loves the kitties. Yep. Eesh. Wonder what his age cutoff is. Like, is he if he's about to kill somebody and they're like eighteen? He's like, get out of here. Yeah, he just sniffs him like, oh, you've gone bad. Oh my mm. god, <laughs> Jesus, that was, <laughs> that was fucked up. <laughs> god. Uh, so ultimately, Freddy is defeated by the ultimate power, the power of love, as is tradition. He tends to be defeated by the power of love quite a lot. Uh I do like that. Back to the Future week on this show, bringing bringing back the power of love. Uh, but yeah, Freddy gets becomes Jesse again. But you know you can't beat an idea, which is basically what Freddy is at this point. So he pops in on the school bus, 
one last time because you'll never be rid of the Krug. Oh no, of course not. Um, I I did like that. I did like that. Uh, it, he kind of like that's like his his kryptonite is like not not only is it you know kind of taking the wind out of his sails and you know like with Nancy in the first one you know she's like she's like I'm not afraid of you anymore. You can't you can't hurt me. You're not you know you're you're nothing. And and then in this one it's a combination of you know Lisa not willing to let Jesse go. And be consumed by Freddie and also Freddie getting burned. So like fire somehow is like the the one thing that can, you know, kind of slow him down, so to speak. And it's a really interesting thing that they did at the end of that, where like you just see like this lump, this charred lump laying down on the ground. And then that arm comes up and you're like, fuck me, is this kind? Is he not dead? Like, what the fuck do we have to do? And then <clears throat> it they kind of have like a little Ghostbusters moment where he's fucking like pulling off the chunks and Jesse's underneath. And what I did, what I did kind of like about the ending of that, that, that sequence is you get this moment where like Lisa's like looking at him and she's like, Oh, you're here. And Jesse has, he has this fucking look. He has no idea what the fuck's going on. Where the fuck am I? Who are you? Oh, okay. I know who you are. And then he like leans in, like like they're almost gonna kiss. And then he just fucking rests his head on her shoulder, and he's just he's 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 so just so worn out from all of this. And that for me would have would have been a really good way to to end that with their relationship like not being solidified in the traditional sense. But then they totally undermine that when he gets on the bus. And he fucking kisses her, and I'm just like, God damn it! Like, you you were trying to tell me that Jesse was strong enough to beat this, and he's he's okay with who he is, and then you just you fucking ruined it. You ruined it, losers. Yeah, but I did not expect the claw to come out of the girl in the backseat. That was a that was a nice shock. Oh, totally, totally. Well, wow. it's, it's a really good, really good gotcha moment. Oh yeah, you got to have a gotcha moment. Bob Shea said so. Oh, yeah. Uh, Big time. <laughs> That's Elm Street 2. Here are some film guys and facts for the movie. Number one, I love this. Michael J. Fox was considered for the role of Jesse Walsh, but was unable due to his commitments to Back to the Future and Teen Wolf. So we could have had Michael J. Fox. I, I wonder how this would have been rewritten to accommodate him. Well, we probably would have gotten a much longer dance sequence, I'm sure. Um, probably a lot of, uh, you know, his uh, his awkward uh, feelings for his for his friend. That probably would have been teased out a little bit more. Um, Might have even gotten a basketball sequence out of there. Who knows? You know, we can, we we know we know the fox likes to play some hoops. Yeah, could have gotten a you know he plays a school dance or something, and Freddie fucks that up. See, there's potential. I I know personally that if Michael J. Fox had been in this, this probably would be my favorite film of the franchise. (laughs) And Uh, then we would have had to sit here and talk about Eric Stoltz and Back to the Future. uh, You know what? The right call was made. (laughs) made. (laughs) I don't even like thinking about that. Oh, no. (laughs) Um. Number two, Wes Craven did not like this film. He stated that the film's script was substandard and took too many liberties with the character of Freddy Krueger 
broke many of the rules set up in the original. He hated the pool scene, feeling he couldn't take Freddy killing teens taller than he was. Seriously. Like, Freddy can't kill people taller than him? <laughs> That's funny. It's not, you know, Jason's like eight feet tall. That doesn't mean they all have to be eight feet tall. I mean, for fuck's sake, Michael Myers stabbed a chick in the back with a scalpel and lifted her up. That makes no sense. Michael really like her. somehow used a car door to get a woman to shoot herself in the face, and I'm still trying to figure that out. It looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, number three, and this is something I have held, I've bitten my tongue on the whole time because I wanted to bring it up here, and I'm glad I did. Despite the film's title, it is never revealed upon whom Freddy is seeking his revenge. Freddy's Revenge is a terrible title for this movie. Um, I think like the 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 ongoing grudge he has against the 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 parents of Springwood is probably the only like the only thread you could pull on and try to say like yeah this is his revenge on on the town but like he's not even directly getting back at anybody that was directly involved in what he did you know so because 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 that's never explicitly stated um in in this movie i mean i don't know what you could have like subtitled this as if you even would have needed to it could have just been a nightmare on elm street too you know or it could have been a nightmare on elm street to freddy's home i don't know i like that freddy's home i like that i think freddy's revenge would be a great title for part three i like dream warriors but freddy's revenge makes more sense for part three yeah that's just weird it's, I, I don't care for it. It's like, where's the vengeance? There is no vengeance. He doesn't even mention the events of part one. He's like, there's no revenge here. He's just doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Ah. Um, so I give this one a seven. Story's not great. Characters are pretty one-dimensional, but some of the visuals are beyond impressive, and I can't fault Mark Patton's committed performance. It, this was a three when I saw it the first time. Yeah, I, I right when I was getting ready to rewatch this, I saw uh, yours and Caleb's reviews, and I was like, "Oh, these youngsters! The world was so clear to them back then. I get it. They they were so sure in their opinions, and I appreciate that. But you're wrong. Um, <clears throat> I I be, being that this is one of my favorite nightmare movies, it's an eight. Um, Mark Patton really is the shining light in all of this and couple that so i'll even make a recommendation and i'll and i'll back it up just like you did earlier like watch scream queen and this movie and you will appreciate it that much more just just to understand that something can be misunderstood and then over time you you find out more about it and you learn about the, the the people that were involved in it and you you find there there's there's another story here one that wasn't on screen and you can appreciate what this movie is <clears throat> and have that context to get a new perspective on something you know a, a lot of people i mean for for a long time and it's mentioned in um never sleep again it's it's labeled as like the gay nightmare like that was how it was referred to for for years derogatorily obviously um but now it is rightfully 
getting getting the respect that it deserves. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. This is, you know, this, this this film deserved a second look. It deserved a second chance at, you know, being its own thing. And I think, you know, if you detach it from the first Elm Street, it stands on its own as a, a decent horror flick that lives in that same world. And I, you know, I'm glad that it's being reclaimed. I'm glad that people can find something in this movie. Because like my, one of my favorite things about the doc was how the gay community has adopted this film as something that reflects, you know, something they could relate to. And I, I love that, that this film has that for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a way that, you know, people who didn't have an avenue for expressing themselves when they were younger, but then they find it in this and then they say, you know what, you hate it, but this is mine and I'm going to celebrate it and I'm going to use it to, you know, add to my armor to where fuckers like you who hate me aren't going to get to me anymore because this is mine and it's only going to make me stronger. And I'm going to, you know, if I'm a creative person, I'm going to, you know, take ideas from this and use this in my own art and to make it so where somebody that sees this movie or sees my movie can like, it just, all that just keeps going. That cycle perpetuates and things get easier and easier and easier. It'll never be easy, but it'll get a little bit better knowing that you have, you have somebody else out there that is, is feeling the same thing that you're feeling and they're, and they're expressing it in a, in a very, uh, in a very palatable way. That's one of the best things I love about horror movies is it allows you to explore ideas that are very hard to confront on their own. But when you weave them into a story and you find characters that you can relate to, it it makes that subject a lot easier to tackle. And you can talk about those kinds of things. And it just makes that conversation that much richer and that much better. Damn right. Well said, man. That's a great way to send off this episode. No, oh, um, thank you very much. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. If you like the show, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Uh, Connor 95 that's me and, and through me you can find everybody else and yeah we've really been embracing Letterboxd a lot lately uh, if you want to suggest films for us to check out you can email us at filmgasm at gmail.com or send us a message through the socials or you know Letterboxd if you want to support the show through Anchor you can click on support this podcast we, uh, on your preferred provider we appreciate it and as always check out the website we've got an, kind of an archive now of all of our reviews and we'll be continuing to put up the all of our episodes articles trailers of upcoming films all that's going to keep going uh next week since we're tackling back to the future part two on oscar sunday i figured why not finish off my favorite franchise over here on filmgasm with back to the future part three with Doc trapped in the Wild West, Marty enlists the help of Doc's 1955 counterpart to fix the DeLorean so Marty can use it to go save Doc from a gruesome death at the hands of Buford Mad Dog Tannen over a matter of $80. It's the thrilling conclusion to the flawless trilogy that made me fall in love with film. Don't miss it next week on the Filmgasm podcast. Regrettably, all three films are not streaming anywhere at the moment, but odds are you probably know someone who owns them on DVD or Blu-ray. These films are on Netflix for the longest time, but as usual, when we need them, they're gone. <laughs> so yet another advertisement for physical media, folks. Don't let the streamers dictate what you can watch. 
curate your own fucking collection and have your own movies ready to go. Be your own video store. Damn right. I've had five or six different iterations of Back to the Future, the trilogy. I'm on my Steelbook Blu-ray collection now, holding out for the 4K, which I will be buying as soon as I can afford it. <laughs> uh, don't miss the 2006 rom-com Failure to Launch on Fridays Beyond the Bad. And of course, the 1989 sequel, Back to the Future Part 2 on Oscar Sunday. While you're at it, check out our most recent episode of our new podcast, Fake True Stories, where we discuss the historical inaccuracies of films that claim to be based in truth. In episode three, we tackled Disney's Pocahontas. Check it out. It's a blast. It's really fun. Isabel's really coming into her own on that. Uh, Until next week, don't hate movies just because they might be gay. Give Freddy's Revenge another chance and keep watching movies. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.